This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. And they knew that if you don't close those doors completely, you're not coming home alive. You're not, com- you're not coming home. So, so they said, Robert, we, you know, we we we've got some engineers working on the bulkhead latch tools, and another one is working on a winch to close the doors. But we don't have anybody working on the centerline latches. So, again, knowing nothing about the space shuttle doors, it kind of started learning. And luckily, there were some trainers over in Building Nine. Yeah, there were some big mock-ups that were very accurate replicas. Yeah. Started looking at that, and then they started building a, a smaller, higher fidelity trainer. Oh, the other thing, we couldn't change anything on the shuttle. We couldn't right. touch. Right, it's done. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. What's the worst career advice anybody ever gave you? My guest today was passionate about cars and planes and how they worked, and he had a real knack with them. But his high school counselors didn't point him towards engineering. Instead, they suggested he become an engineering draftsman, drawing up the ideas real engineers had, likely because folks like him just didn't go to college in their view. You see, his parents were farm workers. He was actually born in Mexico himself. Well, Robert Trevino followed their advice, at least the first step, but then he turned the story his counselors likely imagined on its head, ending up in NASA as one of the leading designers of specialized tools for spacewalkers and a key member of the Hubble Space Telescope servicing team. His story reminds us to not let other people's take on our potential clip our wings. Our passion, commitment to excellence, and persistence do more to shape our destination than anybody else's opinion. So have a listen. Well, I'm delighted to be joined today by a longtime and very favorite NASA colleague, Robert Trevino. Robert's not one of my astronaut colleagues, but we worked hand in glove on the Hubble Space Telescope in about for about five years before it was taken to orbit. And I'm delighted to have you join me on the podcast, Robert. Thank you for giving me your time. Well, thank you, Kathy, for inviting me. I, I hope I can do as close a job as some of the others. I'm sure you will. Well, for all that we worked so close together for those five years, Robert, it wasn't until I got back in touch with you as I was researching my book, Handprints on Hubble, that I learned a bit about your own family background and your life story. And that's what I hope you'll share with my listeners today, is take us back to the young Robert Trevino, where you were born, where you grew up. Tell us a bit about your family and the background that shaped you as a very young boy. Well, my family were migrants, and my my mother is from New Braunfels, Texas, outside of San Antonio, and my father was from Mexico. We would go back and forth. My older brothers and sisters were born in in the U.S. and Texas, and my uh, younger brothers and me were born in Mexico. We came back when I was just one one year old, and uh, we settled back into New Braunfels, where my father was a truck driver. Now, what was really amazing, I'm the third youngest, and again, this out of how many? Out of twelve. Oh wow. Yeah, that's what I mean. Sometimes I even when I say that, I'm just surprised now. Nine boys and three girls. And again, we 
didn't really realize, I mean, there were some large families, I remember, that we, we knew, but this was very, very unusual. So when I was, uh, I guess, about four or five, we moved from New Braunfels to San Antonio. Much larger city. Much larger city, more opportunities. And my, uh, my father, again, got a job as a truck driver for one of the local milk companies. Oh. And he would deliver milk to uh, stores and even homes that, at that time they delivered milk to some houses. Yeah, I remember that six pack of milk bottles on your porch each morning. <laughs> so my older brothers started working, and unfortunately, my father passed away when I was in the first grade. Oh my! Of a heart attack, difficult. I remember uh, in the first grade, and when we used to walk back to the house, and we had a neighbor waiting for me, and told me, you know, you have to come over here to my house for a little while while they tell you. So, kind of grew up without my father, but my my older brothers and sisters really watched over the younger ones. How much older than you was your oldest brother? I'd say between 15, 17 years older. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because I know my, like my older brothers, you know, we were like one and a half years apart. Yeah. So again, it's a very unusual family, but we were very close-knit and did a lot of things. So, um, so your older brothers had to support the family or your, or your mom yes. worked or both? Yes, my, my older brothers would, while well, I was working, and also my, my oldest uh, sisters were working. Uh, they would contribute to the household. And we had bought a house uh, just before my father passed away there in, in San Antonio's small house. We had a big backyard, and we were able to do a lot of things. But all of them were very different in their skills and what they employed, like my my oldest sister, she worked for the YWCA International as an interpreter and kind of coordinating a lot of activities with the YWCA. My next oldest sister, very young, she learned to sew. And with a seamstress, she would make dresses for the neighbors and everything. So she worked for this uh, very old company in San Antonio called the Soul Frank clothing and uniform company. <laughs> so, you know, we have a lot of military bases in San Antonio, Army and Air Force, and uh, she would tailor, you know, the officer's uniforms. Uh, yeah, you got to look good. <laughs> <laughs> but she also sewed uh, wedding dresses with a lot of the decorations and any other special dresses that they would bring in the picture of it or a a pattern and she would sew them. Yeah. And some of the clothes that sold Frank sold, she would do the tailoring for them. She must have sewed a lot of quinceañera right. dresses. And the biggest thing she was real proud of was that she sewed um, this Western outfit for, at the time, I think he was a senator, Lyndon Baines Johnson. Oh, wow. You know, you probably have seen him set out some of these kind of like Western yeah, like, embroidered. Like suits, but they have a little bit of Western flair. And I remember she was real proud that she got, he came in and bought one of those suits. And so she said, yeah, she uh, had to sew uh, and tailor the suit for LBJ. <laughs> wow, that's cool. So what kind of things were you interested in when you were your earliest years, three, four, and five? Your brothers and sisters doing so yeah. many things around you. I went to a, a nearby elementary called the Davy Crockett Elementary School. One of the things that I really remember, because uh, my name in my birth certificate is Roberto, but at the school, when starting elementary, they, I remember they telling me, no, your name is now Robert. And that happened to my other brothers, too, like my brother Jesse. His name was Jesus, and they changed that to Jesse. <laughs> wow. I did it occur to you at all to object to that? I yeah, mean, because all the all the teachers taught in English, and uh, I had already started learning English at home. So, young age, I was bilingual. I remember, really, really enjoyed it, especially learning history and English and and math. So, I, remember I had a had a good time in elementary, but but as far as outside, I, I you know a lot of my uh, my older brothers and friends they were more into little league and sports and i didn't play in it even though i i, I did a lot of things at home playing 
you know, baseball with my friends and neighbors and we would have our own league, but I didn't play any formal one, but what I did spend, I remember spending a lot of time was some, for some reason, I really got interested in things that fly, like gliders and kites. And my family bought me a few gliders. And I remember getting some balsa wood gliders and just, again, without any direction, kind of experimenting. I guess, you know, I'm, I'm talking about seven or eight years old. You know, what happens if I move the wings forward? What, what happens if I put a penny taped to the front? Just experimental, experimental things. When I would get a different glider, you know, I would switch out the wings and yeah. And once they were once they were broken, I would I was just looking at real airplanes, you know, see what you know what would happen if I put two wings on it. <laughs> so <laughs> just did a lot. Then also at the same time, I got real interested in kites. For some reason, I loved kites and flying kites. You know, bought a few, but I also started building my own kites. And my brother would tell me, "Oh, why don't you use bamboo? Bamboo is really light." So. With a hammer and knife, I would split the bamboo into really thin lines and yeah. get some some tissue wrapping paper that my mother would have for wrapping presents. But I would take it and uh, make some glue out of water and flour and make different kind of, from looking at commercial kites, building my own kites, you know, little ones, big ones. And I remember one of my pride and joys, I got some bamboo and I split it and it was nearly my height. So I would say at that time, probably four to four feet tall, <laughs> just a big homemade kite. And I remember f- when the first test flying, it would fly, but it would start making corkscrews. And I'd learned that from the past, but they needed a little more tail. So we had some old sheets that I would cut into a tail and just start ma- experimenting, making the tail longer until it was stable. And that thing really flew well Wow! <laughs> after, after experimenting a lot with it. Were you kind of the lone kid doing the gliders and the kites, or was there a little group of you? Yeah, I found out yeah, that a lot of my my brothers and my neighbors weren't really that much interested yeah. in, in doing that. And then the last thing I kind of remember, and again, it cost money, but I would get them periodically. My mother and, and older sisters would buy me, I would tell them, plastic model airplanes. I started you know, assembling and gluing together all the the model airplanes that I liked. And uh, I remember one, one plane that just always really liked was the X-15. Which Neil Armstrong and Joe Engel flew to high enough altitudes that they were called astronauts before they flew in space. Exactly. And I was just, I was just fascinated with that air, yeah. uh, that rocket plane. San Antonio, as you said, has got a lot of military bases around, including a couple of Air Force bases that train, you know, entry-level pilots. So was that part of the influence that you were seeing airplanes around you? or? Yes. I was in the west side of San Antonio, so I would see a lot of, especially the heavy airplanes like the C-130s and C-141s. The transport airplanes. Yeah. I'm trying to think of when the C-5 came in, but they, I could see them and when they would take off and climb. By junior high school, my one of my brothers was working at Kelly Air Force Base. He got a job there to be a trainee for an auto aircraft mechanic. And I remember he would talk a lot about the airplanes and what he's working on and say, hey, we're going to have an air show this weekend. So I would make sure that I could get a ride and go to see the air show. So that was, again, just seeing them firsthand, again, got me really motivated in in airplanes. At Kelly Air Force Base was the maintenance for the heavy aircraft, Uh such as the B-52s. C-141s, and later the C-5s, and they have these the big bombers, The big bombers and the big cargo planes. Big, big right. And then the training, I didn't go, didn't get to go that, that much, but it was over at Randolph Air Force Base, which was over on the east side. That's where they did all the Air Force pilot training. Okay. So I didn't see a lot of that, because they tend to do it more on the east side of San Antonio, and then later on, kind of south, they had a lot of patterns. So yeah, I kind of grew with a lot of Air Force planes all, all, all around me. Later, I joined the Navy, but not a lot, but it's just kind of the aviation side yeah. of it was pretty interesting. When did you graduate high school? In high school, I graduated in 66. Okay. So, you know, it's sort of the Vietnam War is going yeah. on, and curious what the sociology and social setting around you was in terms of a kid from your family, your background, interested in airplanes. That can't have been really common. Interesting, and 
like you said, in the high school years and everything that was happening around me, my brother, Jesse, who's, who's an artist, had gotten a scholarship to study in New York at the Art Students, Art Students League, which is a very famous art school. He submitted a portfolio that he got selected to, to, to go to New York. He spent a little less than a year when he got drafted into the Army. You know, that, that time, you could get a draft deferment if you were in, a, in an accredited college, but the government didn't consider this art school a college. So he got drafted into the Army. And, you know, he came back to San Antonio for a, a number of few weeks and then we reported for, to the draft. And before too long, he was on his way to Vietnam with less than a year. But while all of this was happening in my neighborhood, two or three of them just from my block got, got drafted. So it was all around me of what was happening. And I had a high draft number. That was the other thing that when they, it was like a lottery. And unfortunately, my brother got a low one and I got a high one. So I said, well, it looks like I may not be drafted right away. So when I graduated, I knew at the San Antonio airport, they had a couple of small aircraft companies. One, I don't know if you've heard of called Square Engine Aircraft. They, they built this uh, twin engine turboprop, kind of a commuter airplane. But there was another company there on the, where the uh, aircraft companies were called the Business Aircraft Corporation. And when I talked to them, because I, I forgot to mention, when I went to a vocational and technical high school, okay. I wasn't planning to go to college. And I studied for half a day each day uh, engineering drafting. I had, had a good uh, math background. Some of my other friends, they, they went into auto mechanics and yeah. air conditioning repair, sheet metal, just a lot of trades like that. So explain a little bit, what does that mean you're doing in an engineering drafting class? Well, instead of uh, a desk, we had drafting tables with all the drafting equipment. And we would have classes on the use of uh, the different types of pencils and kind of a lot of the basic tools that you have in engineering drafting, such as the engineering scale, uh, learning about scaling, uh, obviously triangles, very large triangles, <laughs> learning how to use all that curves. For those who don't know, because nowadays it's probably all on some computer app, what is the job, what's the role of an engineering draftsman okay. in like planning or, or building an airplane, for example? Right. The engineer would give you a sketch of what, what he thinks his part would be. Okay. And then I would have to do a very detailed drawing of that with a, a front view, a, a, a side view, and a top view with enough detail that the machinists, because that's how they work from those, from those views. So, and they're machining by hand back then, right? right. So, they're so looking the initial at... goal is to then make a, a print of that. And we didn't do blueprints. We did what we call white with blue line prints. Okay. That drawing would have all the information that you need for a machinist to build that part. Okay. So, the kind of thing that today might be done on a, a computer-aided design app, you were doing by hand. Right. Now, it's all CAD. But at the time, it was all parts like that. Yeah. And sometimes we're asked to do illustrations of them, but primarily it was doing the three views and it's pretty complicated, you know, with drilling the holes and, and identifying the threads. You had to put every detail in, right? Like if uh, oh, yeah. you know, there's, there's such a thing as countersunk screws where the top of the screw is flush or it's, you know, it's the top of the screw sticks out. You had to specify that kind of thing in the drawing too? Exactly. So okay. we would have a, um, a lot of manuals that would give us the dimensions, some diameter, how, what the countersunk was, or counterboard. Yeah. So it just got progressive. The first one were pretty simple parts, but it just got more complicated as we went on. So how did you, I'm curious, maybe roll the tape back a little bit. What led you to choose engineering draftsman at the, at the Votech College? Well, I think it was my interest in, in airplanes. But you didn't imagine just going and becoming an engineer? No. In fact, in my high school, you know, I went to shop, engineering drafting half a day. And after lunch, it was classes. Okay. But it was minimal classes. Like the highest math that I took was Algebra 1. Oh, so okay. It, it was not preparatory. But again, I, I kind of, again, just looking at 
some old movies. I would see some of the some of the aircraft movies, and they would show like the engineering department of a, all these engineers leaning over their their drafting tables, designing parts and taking them, and then to the shops where they were building the new airplane. It just kind of fascinated me, and I also kind of liked art and drawing than I was to auto mechanics or radio and TV repair. Yeah, yeah. It was just that I kind of was leaning more towards working with my hands and, and drawing. So kind of had an idea of what draftsmen did and thinking, okay, well, maybe I can work for an aircraft company someday and, and be part of that team that's building the airplanes and get maybe to go. So that was interesting. You did end up doing that, and you did eventually go to college. Tell me right. a bit more about that transition from being a draftsman to... Okay, so when I graduated from high school with a certificate in engineering drafting that certified me as a draftsman, I applied to these aircraft companies at the San Antonio Airport, and one of them was called a business aircraft, and they saw my you know, my experience, and I mean, not in, not in any work, but just what I had done in, in high school. They hired me. And this company was really interesting. They took existing aircrafts and they modified them. The oil companies, I didn't realize, they did a lot of aerial photography. The real detailed oil well fields were drawn out on photographs. So we would modify the aircraft to mount a camera that they that they needed. And uh, the engineers would give me... Uh, you know, sketches of these parts or, or no drawings. Hey, Robert, we want you to make a new drawing of this part of the camera mount. Right. Or we're modifying the the main crew hatch and turn it into a, a larger one. So we need a little bit bigger brackets in the hinge here. <laughs> so just a lot of things like that. You're at that firm for how long? And what was it that provoked you to think about going to college? Well, I, I worked there that whole, the whole summer and one of the engineers that I worked with that would give me a lot of the work, he said, Robert, you're doing some great work, but you need to go to college. I mean, I would like to keep you here. We really want you to progress. And I think, you know, you should go to college. <laughs> so that got me motivated. What was your family's reaction? Had anybody in your family gone to college before? I talked to them and they said, well, we don't know how much we can support you. We can support you here and, you know, obviously living in the house and food, but I don't, we don't know anything about tuition. We know that it's going to cost. So I went to a San Antonio College with a, with a community college there that was, you know, amazingly in San Antonio, there's like four universities, but they're all private universities. San Antonio, I, later I learned, was the largest city without a public university up until the 90s. It was, you know, Catholic universities, Baptist universities, but there were no public. And so San Antonio College was a big community college. And I went and talked to the counselor that I wanted to start it, but I, what I could do, whether I needed a loan or what. And they said, well, this is, I mean, it was really fortunate for me. They had what they call a work study program where I would work 15 hours a week doing something at the, at, at the college and they would pay me. And then I could you know, be on campus. So I wasn't commuting. I would be there, so I would work so many hours and go to my class and come back later in the evening and work a couple of hours. Nice. And then again, I, I was really lucky. A lot of them work in the cafeteria or cleaning the, the gym. I, I had one of those food service jobs. <laughs> <laughs> and but luckily, they, they said, Robert, we think you would do great in the library. So I got to work in the San Antonio College Library. But also, very fortunately, I wasn't... They had students that would be working the desk and then putting the books back into the shelves. But they said, no, you're going to be working with one of our lead librarians who she determines the, the Jewish decimal numbers on the books. And she also is responsible for the rare books the collection. So she had an office. As she was marking the books, she would put in a little, just a little scrap piece of paper, write the Jewish number. And she would fill up a, a like a cart with those, and then it was my job to kind of get that cart, bring it back to my area, and we had some special label makers where I would make the the label for the the Jewish number and carefully put it on the book, 
So I did that, but then the part that I really got interested was in the rare books. She would uh, have these certain rare books and she, and she taught me how to, um, you had to be Elmer's white glue that was didn't have any chemicals in it. And you had to use that one, like little little tears kind of- Like to repair the pages? To barely repair, part of it was, was peeling off. I did yeah. have to be really careful and I would apply it with a little cotton swab or a toothpick just to put a minimum and really touch it. We didn't want any of it. Yeah. And make sure that the glue didn't leach through the paper and show. Then she also taught me how to make, there were some, some rare books that couldn't be put in a shelf. They had to be in a, what's called a portfolio. So she taught me how to cut this. It was kind of a special type of a mat board. And then we had, I had to use this cloth tape. And, and I don't know if you've seen these portfolios, Kathy, but it's basically that you have a kind of a rare small book. It would, I would size it for it to be about an inch bigger than, than the, the mat that it was on. And I would make these, these flaps. The one that would go from the bottom, one for the top, and then two for the side and, and kind of protect the, the book. And then I would had a little hole puncher and we had the special lace that I would uh, tie on each end to then cinch the portfolio with a little bow on it. And lace the bindings. So how did these skills, there are a lot, these are a lot of interesting skills that I don't think of as really tying directly into the kind of aeronautical and aerospace engineering you later did. Do you see a thread between some of these very detailed chores and, and the career you ended up in? That's a good question because later I think what my career had been, I had not learned certain things and at business aircraft and then at the library. It really taught me uh, kind of attention to detail and to be careful with certain things. And then the other thing was to try to do a good job. I mean, I, I didn't try to just rush and, put, you know, get these things out. Yeah, quality. Quality. I made mean, really real careful because I knew my yeah. work was going to be just. So I think that was one of the big things. But then the other thing, it kind of opened my eyes to, again, you know, it's not part of college training, but I got to see all these books coming into the to the college and not just, you know, history books. And yeah, there were a lot of art books, these large art books. Did your family have a lot of books? I mean, was reading a thing in your household as you were growing up? We had uh, a small library. I remember uh, when I was, was a Christmas present to, to our brothers, they remember these... Uh, not the big Encyclopedia Britannica, but we got a, a popular mechanics no. do-it-yourself encyclopedia. Wow. <laughs> that you would go in there and see how does an electric motor work? Oh, kind of like the new volumes of how things work where you could get a little technical right, from, from insight. popular mechanics. Yeah, yeah. It would also had kind of do-it-yourself. Yeah. How would you build a, like an automobile section? Small rubber band powered yeah. little part. They do projects like that. So at home, we, we didn't have a lot, but... Not a household that was reading literature or poetry right. or... Yeah. So I want to fast forward a little bit here because I want to be sure to talk with you a good bit about your time at NASA. I mean, you, you did your two years at the vocational college and working your way through and then enrolled at the University of Texas. And you, you did become an aeronautical engineer. Yes. Right? And then directly from there into the Navy? Yes. In my senior year, last semester, I had to complete, I can't remember what it was, like 15 hours, and said that would, I could graduate with a degree in aerospace engineering. And somewhere in one of the, just walking through the engineering campus, I saw where the Navy was going to have some recruiters and interviewing. And I had always been interested in Navy airplanes and maybe flying. So I read the sign said they would be at, I can't remember which one, like Taylor Hall at, at one o'clock. And so we went over there and went to a room and uh, there were, there were some other students in there that had also come to, to learn about Navy aviation. The recruiters talked a little bit and then said, okay, I'd like to give you guys a aviation aptitude test. And this test consisted of, of an airplane picture of an airplane in different positions, like flying horizontal, yep. diving, diving, wind tilting, yep. and then below it, it had pictures 
uh, and those images, I'm sorry, were from the cockpit. I'm sorry, I forgot okay. to mention. Right. And then below it were the different pictures of the whole airplane. So which one has the elevator up or the ailerons right. this way that right. would make it do that? Yeah. That's the, cool. The whole picture of the airplane was the one from the cockpit to what the airplane was actually doing. <laughs> so I bet you aced that after all your glider experiments. <laughs> yeah. And, and actually, I did pretty good because I'm trying to think it was my senior year. I took a aerospace class where I got to fly the link trainer. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of hours in the link trainer. And I mean, from takeoff checklists all the way to flying and climbing and collecting data on, on stalls. So it was, it was it was more of an engineering class than a pilot, but still you had to learn all the checklists and all the flight controls and, and learn to read all your instruments and altitude and, and airspeed. So the Navy snatched you up? Well, what they did, the next thing they said, they told me, okay, you did pretty good, Robert. said, can you come out tomorrow? We'd like to take, there were about three of us, I believe, that they selected and said, We'd like you to, we're going to take you out to this little outlying airfield. We brought a T-34. Which is a little turboprop trainer, two-seat tandem trainer. Yeah, uh, Beechcraft Navy trainer. We want to see how you do in the airplane. That's pretty cool. That's a fun airplane. <laughs> they, they took us over to the airfield, and I remember we said, okay, here, let me strap this parachute on you. <laughs> <laughs> this D-ring is what you pull if we have to bail out. I'll, and I'm going to tell you. How to do that? We're gonna open the the canopy, and I'll just tell you to to get up and just jump out. So we went out to to the airfield and got into the T-34, and he strapped me in, real careful, got the helmet on, connected to the intercom, and we took off and uh, just kind of doing the patterns around the airfield. It was a really small airfield; they weren't an airplane flying. And uh, he uh, said, "Okay, you want to take controls?" And I took it and. Again, just from my link trainer experience, you know, kind of control it through altitude and say, okay, can you make a turn? And I made a turn and it was pretty good. And said, okay, got the controls now. We're going to do a couple of more interesting things here. How about a loop? <laughs> <laughs> That's a quick familiarization into yeah. aerobatics. Yeah. But you loved it? Yeah, I loved it. I did pretty good. So he came back and said, oh, okay, you did pretty good. You'll be hearing from us if to see if you want to actually enlist and commit to it. They sent me all this information, and I think it was, I mean, a couple of weeks after that, they sent me a letter with some plane tickets to report to the Naval Air Station in Dallas for a full flight physical, because those were the closest flight surgeons. So I went over there, and they just wanted to make sure that I didn't have any other problems, and I took the full flight physical, and I said, yeah, you're, you're good to go. Cool. We're going to hop ahead again. Okay. When is the Navy for four years, five? It was really a commitment of four years after okay. you get your, depends on when you get your wings. Yeah. So then you you left the Navy and pretty quickly ended up NASA. And I really want to talk about, I mean, NASA to many people in the popular imagination, you know, NASA is synonymous with astronaut. Astronaut is not at all the only job and the only cool job that NASA has. You joined NASA at a really fascinating time, just at the start of the shuttle program. So I want you to focus a little more on what it was like for Robert Trevino in the next 15 minutes or so than the design details. You've got way more detailed capability than, than, than even I have. Yeah, I think my start again is kind of a, com- a combination of luck and then my experience. I, I interviewed, as you remember, Kathy, an engineering director, there's all these different divisions the structures and avionics and... All the things that have to come together to make a spaceship work. Yeah, I knew electronics wasn't my key, but they said, you know, Robert, I think you'd be a good... F-. And I interviewed with those, but... And then I interviewed with a... Well, at the time, was called the Spacecraft Design Division. And there was this was a kind of a, not a unique division because they did a lot of things building hardware in-house that they didn't want to go to a large contract. They wanted right. uh, our engineers to do... De- Designing and build things. And so they wanted the engineers and the draftsmen and the machinists right there. Exactly. So in my, my drafting experience, it would be a perfect fit here. So as soon as I reported to the spacecraft design division, there were a couple of engineers that were working and said, we need your help on this one project. For STS-1, first space shuttle flight, the crew and engineer are concerned about 
closing the payload bay doors. It was sort of the size of a DC-8 airliner, but unlike an airliner, the whole length of it would basically split open right. to reveal a cargo bay so that whatever satellite you were carrying or instruments you were carrying, you could work on it. Right. And so the tricky thing was that all had to close back up and become a really strong spine again, or the shuttle couldn't come home. That's what the crew was worried about? Exactly, yeah. They, they, were, they were redundant motors on the, on the doors. Well, if all, if all that fails, how do you get the doors closed and come home? You know, it might not be the doors, but it, it might be something. And they knew that if you don't close those doors completely... You're not coming home alive. You're not, com- you're not coming home. So, so they said, Robert, we, you know, we, we, we've got some engineers working on the bulkhead latch tools, and another one is working on a winch to close the doors. But we don't have anybody working on the centerline latches. So, again, knowing nothing about the space shuttle doors, it kind of started learning. And luckily, there were some trainers over in Building 9. Yeah, there were some big mock-ups that were very accurate replicas. Yep. Started looking at that. And then they started building a, a smaller, higher fidelity trainer. Or oh, the other thing, we couldn't change anything on the shuttle. We couldn't right. touch. Right, it's done. So. Yep. He said, I think what you need to do is design something, a clamp, a larger clamp. Right. We knew that with the bulkhead latches and the winch that we could bring the doors cl- fairly close, but they still weren't when you they still weren't closing. So they had me so, so I just basically kind of duplicated that and I mean a lot of it was just trial and error, kind of extending the hook so that it would capture more of the latch. Right. Making sure it didn't interfere like the bolts. It would rub against the bolts. Okay, I have to cut a little depression here on, the, on this latch so that it, it misses the bolt and just kind of all trying to said, okay, now the second part is how are you going to tighten it? So I used kind of the same mechanism that we're using on a three-point latch rule, which was a large Acme screw with a ratchet mm-hmm. mechanism. Mm-hmm. It had a spring force so it would pull onto. I know you trained with these tools, so yeah. you know it well. It's a tool you always, as a spacewalker, you really had to master this tool. This was the hardest one in the inventory right. to work with. And, of course, you're only practicing in still one gravity, not not real zero gravity. And you had to get up to an incredibly awkward geometry to work right. with it. But, it, you know, as you said, it had a little trigger that you could fire so the jaws sort of got around the two pieces they needed to grab, and then you'd crank away on this ratchet until it cinched up all the way. It was, it was very clever, just really awkward. <laughs> You hoped, you always prayed you never had to use it. <laughs> we knew it was awkward to use, but that was the only solution. And I remember Gene Krantz. Famous flight director, Gene Krantz. He came over and he wanted to know how we were doing on these tools. So, and, you know, nowadays they would call a meeting and you'd go over there. No, he walked over yeah. to our engineering office and he personally went over to each one of the engineers that were working. You think you're going to have this ready by STS-1? How are the crews doing? You think they'll, they'll be able to do it? I mean, I was really impressed. And then he came to mm-hmm. my my drafting table where I was building a tool, and Al introduced me and told him that I was doing the center line. And he said, oh, that's a tough one. You're going to have it ready? He said, yes, we're going to try. So, <laughs> okay. So I don't know if you knew at this time, uh, Kathy, finally got it got it into the machine shop, and we built up a metallic prototype. I tried it on the, on the mock-ups, and it worked. But we had just built a small portion of the, sh- of the shuttle bay, only the forward part with the latches. Right. And you need, I don't, I'm sure you probably knew that it was still there I don't, when, when you were selected the, the, an astronaut. It was called the WIF, the Water Emergency Facility. It was yep. a very small neutral buoyancy tank, kind of next to your astronaut exercise facility. And it had about one quarter of the length of the whole shuttle payload bay, but built exactly like a real shuttle. It was not a right. it was not a, a model so much as an exact replica. So if you're if the tools could work on that and if you could get them to work on that, it boosted everybody's confidence that you could do it on the real shuttle. Mission Operations Directorate had the EVA trainers that would train the astronauts. The spacewalking trainers. But I was in engineering directorate. Mm-hmm. But the branch chief for the EVA branch, name was Ray Deloso, Saw the work and said, you know, Robert, can you come over and sit next to our trainers? And teach them how this works. You know the equipment better than they do. I, yeah. I, had, I had briefed them on it and they had handled it. But he wanted me to sit there on council with them. And I look back and 
just amazing. John Young and Robert Crippen. Who flew the first space shuttle flight? I got to to train them on using these tools. So yeah. sometimes I said, okay, okay, be sure that the safety on the depress button is off, okay? Right. Before you actually make sure that it's properly mounted and everything. And they 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 worked with it and they, they did it. So kind of working with I remember primarily John Young and Robert Crippen, but I think I trained truly also and he flew on the second flight. Yeah. All the astronauts that were going on, on the first flights until the the MOD were pretty, and then they took over all the training. But uh, one funny story when afterwards uh, the, the water run, we would debrief the crew what they thought and their comments on how we could. So this crew has gotten in real spacesuits, but not ones they're ever going to take to space. They've gotten underwater where they're neutrally buoyant, and it's as close as you can get to the weightlessness of a space flight. And, and they've done that and worked with your tool. This is afterwards you're talking about what happened? Right. They would, we would do a debrief because these tools were just so new. They weren't. Yeah. And uh, they would tell me, no, it worked okay. I think the might need a little bit higher strength spring and things like that. But I remember John Young, we brought the tools and they were on the table. And he grabbed my centerline glass tool and he, he says, this reminds me of the jawbone of an ass. From the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> kind of did look that way, Robert, I got to tell you. <laughs> I mean, it was a jaw, right? It was a jaw yeah. designed to clamp some things closed. Anyway, I thought that was so funny. And John Young was just such an amazing person. He for was. the first flight. That's, that was my closest that I got to him. So you say NASA, most people think astronaut. And at least in my experience, a lot of people tend to presume that's the only worthwhile job to have in NASA. It's the only fun one. From that point where you sort of shifted gears and you were training crews, you spent a lot of the rest of your career helping to train all the astronauts who went up to the Hubble Space Telescope with the hundred and some odd tools that were just as unique as that first centerline tool. You That became really you know, your, what you're famous for at NASA. And I'm, again, on just the human side of that experience, what would you say to people that think, well, I can't be an astronaut, so why would I want to work for NASA? It's, what other jobs are there that are any any worthwhile or any fun? I think the big mission in engineering is that you're going to be working nowadays behind a computer, doing computer-aided design or running software simulations of, of stress analysis. But I didn't really realize there's so many other jobs that engineers do. So one, one important thing was I need to mention how I transitioned from engineering to mission operations directorate. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think it was after STS one or two, you know, engineering director had ramped up with a lot of engineers. They were building the shuttle and then they're they going to the they, downsize because you don't need all those guys anymore. They had to downsize. And I got a personal letter from Chris Kraft, the center director. Who was the big Apollo flight director back when. Right. And. And the letter said, we need to, to downsize engineering directorate. So you have been selected to transition to somewhere in the op- in mission operations because that's we're going to be ramping up the teams there for flight directors and for training and especially training all the crews. Ray DeLoso and, and MOD learned about it. And he, he called me and said, Robert, we'd really like you to come over to MOD and be part of the EVA branch and operations and help us train. And he said, you know, we have a lot of, of the MOD trainers, but they came directly, or some of them had a different background, but don't have the engineering experience. So we'd like you to do the training, but we, we were already getting requests to send people, for example, for the Solar Max repair mission. They, they needed somebody with some engineering experience in there. And then I remember even working on Hubble, even before, you know, just as the, they started designing, because we had to kind of identify the where all the handrails and, you know, with, with yeah. Lockheed. So even before, even before even training, Hubble was in, in Marshall, was, were already doing a lot of the, and said, these are the electronic boxes that we're going to be replacing. And so kind of doing both engineering and flight control. So my biggest mission was a solar max repair mission, the first mission. That was the first time a satellite was actually repaired in orbit. But the flight before that with Bruce McCandless, they were going to test the MMU 
they were going to test a lot of the tools. That's the little rocket backpack that you can fly right. away from the, the shuttle with. rocket pack. And a lot yep. of the tools that we were going to use on the solar max repair mission, we had to do demonstrate that we could actually do these tasks. Yeah. And one of the key parts was called the manipulator foot restraint, which was a cherry picker at the end of the arm. So we, we demonstrated a lot of things before those missions. So, again, we were ready to start working on a lot of the – that kind of gave us all the background to do the later satellite repair missions and eventually the Hubble. So what's it like, you know, if you're on a – World Series baseball team or a Super Bowl football team. There's, you know, however many guys wearing the uniform out on the field, but there's managers and there's trainers, there's strength coaches, there's the guys that get all the helmets and equipment ready. If you win the championship, if you win a Super Bowl, they they get a ring too. It's not just about the eleven guys on the field in uniform. What's your takeaway after all the missions you worked on? I'm curious what your takeaway is about. Do you feel as much a part, do you feel 100% a part of those missions just like the astronauts do? And was there, my second question as we wrap up is, if someone offered you a ride in space, would you take it? Well, as your last question, definitely I would, you know, go in a heartbeat in any sort of space flight. But I really did feel part of the team because, you know, got to work directly with the spacewalking crew members in their training not just the shuttle contingencies, but specifically what they were going to be doing. And there was a lot of new equipment. So I had to really learn that equipment well before I could train them. And they were all, again, you know, working with Bruce on some of the early tools and and then with uh, Pinky Nelson and Oxlade Hofton. I mean, they would, you know, I would meet with them privately and say, Robert, can you explain this a little better? Or we need to, to work a little bit more on this one, this task. And then get all of that. I would be working with another team that was doing the, the procedures and checklists. And then finally, we would go over this and we had built a new neutral buoyancy tank, a larger water training tank, get everything there. So I briefed the crews what we're going to be doing and they had any questions and then we get into it. So that was very satisfying knowing that they were doing all these tasks. You were doing everything from the first idea for a tool. Oh, yeah to getting it built and testing it to make sure it worked the way you needed and then helping the crews really learn how to use it. And I remember doing a lot of back and forth with you on the early Hubble tools because you were creating a lot of those about, well, it doesn't quite do this or that doesn't work real well with my big fat hand and a glove. And I mean, we were kind of co-conceiving of these tools. Yes. What was really satisfying also was being in mission control. Since I was, I was fairly junior, I got to work for what they call the back room. Mm-hmm. So the more experienced ones were, were up front on, on the control. They're the guys you see on TV. Right. Guys and gals. <laughs> yeah. So I was in the back and they would, you know, whenever they were getting ready for the EVA or prior to the EVA, they have questions and we would work on them. So you're the reach back. You're the reach back expert, that one guy out front, right? Exactly. So yeah. I really enjoyed that. Not till much later did I... I got to work the front room on a, one of the satellite retrieval missions. Cool. And we really had one team that kind of specialized in the EMU, the space the suit. The space suit itself. And, and understanding that and any problems. And then I kind of worked more the operations of the, yeah. of the spacewalk. So, I mean, I was familiar with the suit also, but I didn't do a lot of the spacesuit training. I did more of the operation yeah. side. Yeah. And that, that was just so satisfying. I'm trying to think with like in the 90s, one of the last CBAs, they had a lot of problems. I didn't work that mission. It was the, I think it was the Intelsat retrieval mission with Pierre Tewitt. And they, they, they had some problems. And afterwards, management said, you know, there's really nobody in charge of EVA. You know, you had the flight directors, but actually, you know, what can we, what should we do? They, you know, they didn't know, but everything was fairly new. So you remember G. David Lowe, I'm sure. Another astronaut colleague of mine, yep. He was tasked to start the first EVA office that would kind of coordinate. So there were so many EVAs going on. Well, it was pull all the pieces together and make sure someone had a good end-to-end view. That, exactly, that everything yeah. was working together in spacesuits, the operations, you know, all of the missions that were coming from different companies. When he got tasked with that, he called me and said, Robert, you know, I'm starting this new office and I'd like you to be part of this office. Well, I'm only going to have three other people in it. 
And when we start off, and like you to be part of that. That's cool. My final question, if you give a little bit of a short answer, is we're sort of in the early days of what I would say is a you know a new space age with a lot of different things, different companies, different roles. I'm sure you advise a lot of young people about their career and and their educational pathway. What sort of advice would you give to a 15 or 18 year old who's fascinated by all the new things happening in space today? and maybe can't see themselves being an astronaut or isn't sure they want to fly in space, what would you say to them about the opportunity to be a part of making this new space age? I always ask sometimes when college students that question, and I always encourage them to apply both to NASA and to commercial companies, because the commercial companies are growing rapidly. And then whichever one you, you get an offer or would like to work with, try to get a, an internship you know, prior to graduation so you can, you can find out what you really like to do. You may mm. think you you know you, you see a company or NASA flying these new spaceships and oh that's what I want to do, but then you find out well I don't really want to work behind a computer all day. I want to do other things. Mm-hmm. Or others say you know I want to work in mission control, and you go to mission control and say well I don't really like it because I wanted to do more engineering. <laughs> yeah. So but they start finding what they really like whether it's engineering or mission control. So it's really important that at least you try to experience that a little bit before you commit to that area. You find that area that you really like, eventually you do get uh, full-time offers. You know, you, you have the experience, you know you're going to enjoy that job. Yeah. And then go all in once you get it, as you pointed out with the quality, the kind of quality lessons that you learned back in your library with the rare books. Yeah, exactly. Well, Robert, always fun to talk with you after all our long years working together and get some of your stories, because your stories span from the finest little detail, really details are the magic that make it all work, to the big picture of you know, a flight that pulls a satellite out of orbit and fixes it. You've just had an amazing front row seat at a fascinating era of spaceflight, and I know you're not done yet. No, no, I'm working on some new projects now on the Artemis project. All right. The two big projects that I'm working on are the new lunar rover uh-huh. for Artemis. Yeah. But it's going to be much more than what the Apollo lunar rowing vehicle was. I'll get you back on the podcast and we'll talk about going to the moon. I think you should negotiate to get a seat on one of those flights after all of the great <laughs> service you've given to NASA. But for now, I think we've got to wrap this one up. Back on the list, I want to hear more about Artemis. Thank you again for joining me today. Well, thank you, Kathy. My pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.